This edition of Eternal Leadership has been brought to you by Marketplace Rock, a business of intercessory prayer for businesses. Learn more at MarketplaceRock.com. Welcome to Eternal Leadership, a show dedicated to equipping and inspiring leaders to accomplish what God has created in them. I'm Steve Ryder, co-founder and co-host. Here's this week's interview by my partner, John Ramstead. All right, I'm your host, John Ramstead, for the Eternal Leadership Podcast today with Sandra. And Sandra, we have a, a, a great guest on today, Chris Mefford. Chris, welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy to be here today. Well, I'm happy to have you here too because, you know, San, you know what we're going to be talking about today is really, you know, how to create an amazing team. And a lot of that, it's all about how we hire and fire. It's all about the culture that we create inside of the company. And I remember one of the first pieces of advice I had, I was at uh, a Fortune 100 company and we had, we, we were tasked to grow a, a new division from a million in sales to a hundred million in sales over three years. And, um, I had to hire everybody. We had, we had, I was the first person I ended up hiring 35 people. And so this is the first time I'd kind of been thrown into the deep end of building a team from scratch. And my boss gave me some great advice when I first started out. He said, John, John, new managers hire way too quickly and fire way too slowly. And I got to tell you, some of the, the biggest challenges I had leading a team was from some of the people that I brought on and also, you know, the culture that I created. And, you know, you talk a lot, Chris, about, you know, the the workplace culture is really core to kind of setting up the foundation to building, you know, that that team. And so what are some of those, you know, those hallmarks of and how-tos of really creating that great workplace culture? Um, well, first off, you know, I, I, there, are, there are lots of different ways you could do that. But uh, ultimately, you have to decide what kind of team you want to create. And I was like saying things like that, you know, don't hire the, the best people, hire the right people, decide what kind of team you want to create. And those all come off as a bit trite and um, easy to say. And people are like, well, no kidding, of course. But the reality is we struggle and so many people struggle with that very simple concept. You know, I used to work at, at the Lampo Group, the Dave Ramsey organization, where we made, um, you know, living on less than you make a multi-million dollar business. You know, the concept is so simple. Hey, don't spend more than you actually make. Uh, but for some reason, people always found that challenging. You know, Jenny Craig's turned her business into a billion dollar business, right? Consume less calories than you burn. It's that simple. And so, um, yeah, so many people can't do that and they're willing to spend money to have Jenny Craig basically tell them that or for Dave Ramsey to tell them uh, to live on less than they make. So when you say something like, hey, what kind of team do you want to create or hire the right people, not the best people necessarily? It seems like a simple statement, but the reality is it's so difficult for us to do sometimes. And you have to start to ask yourself, why is it so hard? What are are the obstacles in the way? Why can't I achieve this? And I think there are a lot of things that come into play often. And when you start to hire a position, you start to maybe uh, just let HR kind of direct the way. You know, HR is there to guide you, but ultimately you're in charge of your department. You know, if HR is just sending you candidates and you're not allowed to weigh into it, then that speaks to the organization itself. And you've got to sort of push in and say, hey, let me help you understand the kind of quality candidate I want. People used to uh, laugh at me a little bit when I would say, hey, I want somebody who's really talented, who fits in with our culture, um, who has the work experience I need. And I like and want to work alongside day in and day out and want to go after work and sit down and maybe have a, uh, you know, have dinner with. Um, And some people are like, look, I just have to work with them. I don't have to be their friends. 
And that's somewhat true, but if that's the situation you're trying to create, you'll never create an environment that people are passionate about, that you get excited about on Sunday night to wake up and head into work on Monday. And you know, for those of you out there listening who think that that's just a dream or a fantasy, I worked at more than a few organizations where I couldn't wait from Monday to show up and I got to see my friends again and we got to do this awesome work again. And it was this environment that I was so energized in. And when I got put into leadership, I said, that's what I want to create. And I'm going to fight hard to do just that. Well, good for you. I mean, if you look at your background is so, so diverse. You started out as a high school teacher, then you got a super prestigious MBA, went into the marketplace. You've done consulting and training and coaching. You've worked with churches and nonprofits and big business. Um, What's the common thing that you see? Because, you know, John and I have, have both also worked in all of those environments. And, you know, you look at churches, you look at nonprofits, you look at small business, you look at big business, there's a, you know, you can find common threads, but, you know, focusing on your piece, what have you seen as a common thread? Oh, uh, it's simple. One word. This one's easy. Communication. Mm. Yeah. Um, when there is a lack of communication, and I don't mean no one's talking to anybody and everybody's miserable. I mean, you guys are running hard and you've got stuff down and leadership isn't kind of making sure everybody's in the loop on stuff. You know, as Jim Collins says, in good to great, you know, great teams over communicate. And the reality is every time I run into a problem, almost 90% of the time, there's simply a lack of communication happening. We don't know if, we're, if this is what we're supposed to be doing. I don't even know if this is where you want me to be putting my time and energy. I'm not sure if, if this is what I'm supposed to um, do today, but I'm just going to try it. They never come out of the office and talk to me. I don't understand. And so while the leader can sort of, he has this 30,000 foot view and he just kind of wants you tucked in over here doing your job. Oftentimes your team's confused because you aren't talking to them enough, even telling them the most mundane things. And so when I have found if I come in and start to talk to my team, a lot of the fears that they have completely are unjustified and just sort of drift away. And when I communicate even daily or I walk around and tell them what's going on, even things that I think are silly that I don't want think I need to share because it's just so plain and, and basic, um, really changes the entire outlook on the team because the team feels like they're in the loop. They're not left out there kind of wondering and wandering, if you will. And so when I started to communicate over and over again, and I would, I'd love to tell you I, this was a natural talent, but it, it wasn't. I had a situation at work where I, I was a young leader and I had a team of about 15 people and my assistant walked in one day and said, hey, uh, people wish that you would sort of just give them an update on what's going on. And I would say like, what do you mean? And they said, could you just send like an email out it, on like on Friday and just kind of tell people, you know, what you were up to a little bit and where we're headed and what happened this week that was good. And I was like, really? So I said, all right. So I banged out an email. <laughs> like one more like, to do, really? Do I got to do this? Right. Yeah, it's exactly my attitude. And uh, so I banged out an email. It was like three small paragraphs. Had a good week. Everybody was working hard. Here's what we accomplished. You know, next week should be great. The um, positive response I got from that, it literally blew me away. Which escalated to, hey, maybe we should just do a, we should do a meeting. And so it went, we created, I created this thing, I called it the TMZ meeting, which is funny because I didn't, I don't like long meetings. I don't like formal meetings. 
Um, I'm more relational. And so I call the TMZ meeting. So Monday morning, we would all stand around our cubicles. If you've ever seen the TV show, they all kind of just stand around cubicles. That's where it kind of gave its name. And we, I'd say, hey, you know, what's going on in your department? What's going on with you guys? Any announcements, marketing that we need to make sure that we're on top of? All right, any questions? Little things like that. And that really ultimately changed the entire um, personality of the team. You know, if someone did something great, we started to cheer for them. Every week, people could sort of look forward to this situation where they got to share some good news and maybe even get cheered for. I mean, it wasn't this manufactured stuff that I've seen where, you know, you need to write in what somebody did, turn it into HR, and HR will call them, you know, their, their awesome employee of the week type of deal. No, it was just very organic, very genuine, and uh, very kind. And it energized the entire team in ways that I had no idea it would do. And so, you know, sending out that email, communicating the weekly, not just that, not, we didn't, it wasn't a formal agenda type meeting, I think was what made it so successful. And uh, there wasn't really a time limit. It didn't really go long. It, it wasn't meant to be an hour long meeting. It was usually about 20 minutes or so. Um, it really was amazing when you started to see, okay, if that level of over-communication is energizing the team and eliminating this fear, what if I started to sort of do this on smaller levels and smaller pockets and reinforce it at that level, what would happen? And, and it really, it, I just started to learn from there. You know, I think so many times as leaders, we forget that our behavior sometimes can be misinterpreted and your team may be sitting out there hoping they don't do anything to screw up and get fired. And as a leader, my job was to go out and tell them, hey, I'm not, lo- I'm not in my office waiting for you to mess up so I can fire you. I'm in my office waiting for you to come in so I can help you. And if you're a leader and you're not reinforcing that to your team, your team is worried about that. I promise you. No, I, I completely agree. And, you know, something um, you know, we've always done, because uh, I think, you know, if you can actually create a you know, part of the culture that's very affirming to others, Right. And, and affirming is, you know, showing appreciation, telling, you know, giving people a sincere thank you. That's all about them. Right. Because people sometimes get that uh, confused with flattery, which is when I make it about me. Like, hey, Chris, great job. You took everything I told you how to do and you did it right. And I'm kind of giving myself a pat on the back. But we always when I started opening up meetings, affirming people and then I saw that other people would start affirming, you know, teammates and peers. Uh, and then before we got into the meeting agenda, I, w- I would always ask them, hey, how are you guys showing up today? Anything you want to share? In the first couple of meetings, I would share, you know, some personal things, you know, some, you know, things with the family or happen over the weekend or things that are maybe occupying my head that are external to work and made it safe and okay. Because I really want to know, like, if somebody's really struggling with a project deadline, a, a health issue outside, and they just can't wait for this meeting to be over so they can get back to whatever is next. I mean, it's not going to be, there's not good communication happening. And I would also ask them, is there anything else we need to add to the agenda today that would really be helpful? Now, we didn't always add that to the agenda. Sometimes those were things we'd pull offline, or sometimes somebody would have something that uh, that we agreed as a group that you know we should shift our agenda, and this is an issue we could address. So Everybody felt very, uh, my goal was to make sure everybody felt valued and included and was part of the conversation and that they could uh, talk. And it was very important also, I think, as a leader, one of our best uh, tools that we can use in communication is silence. Because we have the, a, you know external processors like myself, and I like to talk and think as I talk. And I have those internal processors 
that it may, if I don't give them sometimes a good eight or 10 seconds, they're not going to contribute. And so sometimes just waiting and pausing that some of the best ideas I've ever had for my team is when I give them that space to kind of think and it's safe for them to say, well, hey, you know, here's something I was just thinking about. So just a couple thoughts that have really improved the dynamics of, of our team and the communication, which also builds relationships at the same time. Right. Yeah, I, like, <clears throat> I like to say that authenticity is the new black. <laughs> <laughs> and and it, it's so simple, but, you know, John just touched on it. If we're vulnerable first and we show that, hey, you know, we're just we're just a hot mess that's riding around on this blue circle, you know, circle in the earth, um, then people go, oh, wow you know, they're a regular person, it's okay for me to mess up, which means it's okay for me to take risks, which means it's okay for me to get out of my, you know, little cubicle box that I feel like I'm in and actually contribute breakthrough ideas. Um, you know, I want to, uh, I had a, a situation, two things. One, first, John, you know, I, what you talked about, I, I sometimes call the paradox of leadership. And so that means that when I finally learned that I, I gave all the credit away and it's not that I don't want affirmation. It's not that I don't want credit. You know, um, I crave it. Uh, but what I, when I learned if I gave it all away and I said, Hey, if someone said, Hey, your team's doing amazing work, I'd be like, Hey, what's well, not me. You know, it was, it was Jordan. It was Lisa. It was Thomas. Uh, they did all the work. You know, all I did was, was have to show up and, uh, and take credit for all their stuff. And, you know, we laugh. And I constantly gave them not just the credit, but credit in front of other people and in front of my peers, in front of their peers. The paradox is I looked great. People yeah. recognized what I was doing in leadership. And I never once tried to steal the credit. Um, and when I did that, the residual was it, it was the opposite of what you think. You actually get more credit. You actually come off more humble, more generous. Um, you know, I agree. You know, that whole concept of, you know... Uh you know, John Maxwell says, you know, everything rises and falls on leadership. And if you can really be that leader that, you know, and I, I, I uh, that really helps other people to succeed uh, and your success is built on a group of people's success. And I mean, who wouldn't love to work for a leader like that? But let me ask both of you guys a question on this kind of another paradox, because I hear this from leaders a lot. I'm a big fan of extreme vulnerability and transparency as a leader. And I often hear from, uh, especially younger leaders, you know, where's that line? Where, you know, is there too much vulnerability? Is there too much transparency? What, you know, will people perceive me as maybe being weak or flawed if I share certain things? So, you know, people listening, what, what are your guys' thoughts, you know, when you're part of a team or leading a team or leading an organization uh, on that subject? Yeah, there's always the TMI, as my middle schooler will say, TMI, too much information, mom, because, you know, I'm a verbal processor and an over communicator. So, you know, my poor husband, right? Oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Chris, what's your take? Um, I don't feel like you can be transparent enough. And, you know, TMI, uh, I don't know that I shared the situation where people would say TMI, but there are times when. I feel like people are like, well, I can't believe you shared all of that with everyone. And so my experience has been, honestly, when I'm super transparent, transparent to a fault, transparent even to a situation where I might come off as looking goofy. You know, if, if I fully admit that, you know, I want to I'm looking forward to taking my teenage daughter to the Ed Sharon concert with her friends because I kind of like Ed Sharon. Um, or occasionally I do find myself tapping along and singing along to Katy Perry songs. Um, that seems silly. 
and, and goofy for like a leader to kind of admit, and maybe not dramatic, this isn't a dramatic experience, but I feel like when I'm overly transparent, here's what happens is my team starts to be transparent. That's lesson one. Lesson two is when they come across problems or challenges that are overwhelming to them, they've seen me and know that being transparent and asking for help will be the first thing that they do. They won't sit on a problem and let it fester to a point where now it's a crisis. And so let me give you an example. I took over this team once and we were uh, a few million dollars in the hole and I'd been working for about six months to try and turn things around and I would have to go down and report to the CFO every month and close the books. And finally, I had about 14 people on my team who were responsible for budgets and spending money. And I, I came up and I said, hey, I open the books and I throw them on the table. Every bit of the accounting, you know, I didn't show people what everybody made, but there was a line item for a grand total of salaries for the department. I mean, everything was on the table. And I said, I need your help. You guys spend all this money. I'm going down there every month. I'm reporting, but we can't seem to hit budgets. I kind of know from you over here and from you over there where the, where the problems are, but I need you to get on the same page with me. So here's what we're going to do. Each month, two of you are going to come with me and help me close the books with the CFO. You're going to see what this process feels like, and, <laughs> and you're going to understand it. And two, I need your help. You know, I'm one person in here trying to solve it, and with me, there's 15 of us in the room now. And 15 are definitely better than one. And I cannot do this on my own. And so they all just started grabbing the, the numbers and we put them on a board and we started walking through it. And I'll tell you, it was a, about a month and a half or two months later, I was in a room in a meeting and I suggested we make a change to the product that we were putting together. And the person who was in charge of that looked at me and said, you know, if we do that, we had $5,000 of the budget that's not accounted for. <laughs> and I almost had to leave the room because at that point I knew they had got it deep down in their soul and we were going to win. And we ended up turning that thing around. We went 10 million up and there was no way I would have done that had I not been transparent and told them I needed their help and showed them exactly what that looked like and then entered into the process with them. Now, I didn't leave the room. I didn't ask for their feedback and then go in the room and try and solve it myself. We did this together. That's the only way we we're going to fix that problem. And the transparency that I showed them said to them, hey, this is probably the biggest problem we'll ever face in this department. If, if our leader's open enough to share his problems, we should be open enough with him and each other to share our problems and challenges and seek help with one another. You know, I think that can, that can be such a, you know, a game changer. One of the clients I was working with, uh, he was leading a large organization and we were in a coaching session and he just felt like the weight of all these decisions the CEO he had to make were just crushing him. And we talked about what was behind that and kind of some of the things that, you know, how he had actually set up his culture and how decisions are made. But I asked, would you be comfortable sharing that, what you just shared with me, with your entire team? your direct reports. And man, this was like, he was taken aback at the thought of doing this and admitting that he wasn't just the guru and you know had it all wired. Uh, he went to his team and actually shared the, the weight and the stress of how decisions were being made and was he really serving the organization well. This led to a transformative meeting where everybody connected and everybody pitched in. And, and as a team, they decided that they were going to completely restructure, you know, how decisions were made. How do we push that, the control down to where the information is? Um, you know, what are the things that are appropriate, you know, to bring up to his level? And I got to tell you, that was like this, this pivot point for this organization where they completely went to the next level because he was also showing, not only showing his vulnerability, but listen, I, you know, 
uh, bringing people into a more trusting relationship on operating and making decisions and empowering the the people around them. So sometimes it feels really counterintuitive to leaders. I, I think some of us have a maybe a wrong view of leadership, but when we can do that, and like you just shared, Chris, man, the the outcome of that or the you know what ha- the results of having some of these conversations, man, it's I think it's really what people are, you know, they want to be part of an organization like that, don't you think? Oh yeah, you know, um, you're reminding me of a story. I was I was in the office. It was my birthday, and we just happened to have I don't remember. He was the chief of staff for the army or somebody touring our offices, and he stopped by my office and said, "You know, is this your office?" And I said, "Yeah," because my team at Deck put all these silly memes and funny pictures that were just goofy and and ridiculous, and you know, a little bit of a mockery. Um, on my wall, on my glass wall to celebrate my birthday. Hey, we heard it's your birthday. And, they, you know, they put it up there. And he said, you know, I've always discovered that a leader who can let other people kind of poke fun at him and take it, but also still be very respected, it makes for one of the greatest leadership abilities that I've seen. And I remember being blown away because it was just such a silly, ridiculous thing. And here's this general the army coming in to tell me the fact that, you know, my team felt comfortable enough to post silly things on my office wall. Um, with me was a sign of a great leader. And I was like, wow, that's something. That was a good affirmation, wasn't it? Yes. (laughs) Who would have thought, right? That's awesome. Well, I, you know, the, the whole piece, when I'm training people, I just tell them, look, when you walk into a room, people don't see you. They don't see you as a human. They don't see you as a human with skills and problems and vulnerabilities and kids and a spouse. They see you as a little box with a job title and they see you for what you can do bad to them. That's just a, the broken, fallen world we live in, right? Yeah, yeah. And so if you can walk into a room and immediately put people at ease by erasing the job title box and letting them see you as a human, uh, you know, that you have kids, that you have a spouse, that you're running late because, you know, you stopped and helped somebody with a flat tire and, you know, that your washing machine broke yesterday and so you got to go borrow a truck to pick it up or your wife's going to be mad at you, you know, just all these things that are real life that people spend so much energy hiding instead of saying, hey, th- you know, this is me and who I am. So, you know, that's how I explain it. Just human nature. You have to erase the job title and let them see you as a human. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes that means that you're like, well, I wish they didn't know this or I wonder what they think about me. Sometimes doubt can creep in. Should I have shared that? Yeah. And, and there are times when you're like, man, I don't know if that was a smart thing. But ultimately, I want to err on that side because if I err on the other side, my team's going to shut down. Fear is going to creep in. They're not going to know if they can trust. They may not bring a problem to me right away uh, that needs fixed. Um, or they may just try and fix it on their own, and, and, uh, you know, individually and make things even worse. And so, yeah, there there is going to be some fine lines that you may cross. You may, you know, even in a situation, maybe a regret here or there. But ultimately, I'd rather err on that side than the other side, which brings, you know, frustration. And uh, it takes longer to achieve success if you even get there at all. Here, here. Now, Chris, I want to circle back because we talked about, uh, you know, making things practical, right? And, you know, a big topic of, uh, you know, is, is bringing on the right people on the team. And you said, hey, you're not looking for the best players. You're looking for those right ones. Um, so wh- how do you think about what is the right person? 
Well, you know, I, I think a lot of times people hire too quickly and they hire too quickly because they get, they need help really fast. And so um, they haven't thought the position through enough. They may not even have a job description or it's a basic job description. And now people come in and the people you've hired are frustrated because, you know, your job description said this, but you really needed that. And you never had time to kind of make sure the two um, work together in that sense. And so you know, understanding what it is specifically you need and how it will be useful, you know, even spending an hour or two stopping everything and just focusing on that can make a huge role of difference. Um, but I always like to start guys with the job description. I feel like 90% of the job descriptions written in this entire world are useless and they're, they're self-serving for the organization. And so, it, especially today as millennials out in the workforce, they want to change the world. They want to know what they're doing is making a difference far greater than just putting money in your, in your pocket. And they want to be included in the process. So here's what I mean. Oftentimes people will write a job description or organizations will write a job description based on, hey, here's what we need from you. Here's what uh, you have to have. Are you in or out? Send us your resume. And that's it. It doesn't do anything to say, hey, jo if you join our team, you'll change the world. If you join our team, you'll grow not only professionally, but personally. And you'll mature. You'll get opportunities in, in areas that you never thought possible. Not only that, you'll join a team that's a blast to work alongside. And those people can reinforce the fact that they've grown professionally and personally. We'd love it if you'd work for us. If you've got skills that match up with these, think about sending us your resume. Like the way you write those are two different things. And what happens is if you're a quality or great candidate, which one of those positions are you going to apply for? Just the one that says, here are the list of requirements. Here's what you do every day. Send us your resume or the one that tells you you'll change the world and grow professionally and personally in ways you never thought possible. Right. And so people wonder why you can't get great candidates. We never get good candidates. And I say, well, start with your job description. I mean, if it's the most boring, if it, it doesn't even tell why you should work there or what's interesting about your company, you know, a lot of people don't want to even apply for that, no yeah, matter how badly they need work. And then what you wind up getting are the people that are, forgive the word, but you use it in your book, uh, the duds, right? Yes. Because if you don't entice the great people, then you're going to get the people that can't get a job anywhere else. <laughs> and you're you're so right. You know, um, I love speaking about millennials and and working with companies to understand millennials. And um, you know, I'm really passionate about it. I love them because they want to make an impact. You know, they're not the Generation X and the baby boomers that you know wanted to go and do their job and and get promoted and make more money and buy a bigger house. I mean, that was great. That's how we were raised. But these guys were raised by those people. And so they've kind of swung to the side of the pendulum where they want to make an impact. They want to leave a legacy, whether it's, you know, their family or their friends or their experiences they're having. And so if you're just writing a job description in today's world, the way we've always done it, you're going to only get the bottom echelon of performers. I truly believe that, Chris. Do you believe it? Absolutely. I couldn't agree with it more. You yeah. know, and, and let, let me ask you this question. So let's just say somebody's out there, and I, I think this uh, this question is going to apply where, whether you're a small, like a coach, and you're hiring your first virtual assistant, or you're, um, you know, bringing somebody into a nonprofit, or it's a larger, you know, for-profit organization. 
you know, what is your mindset and your strategy? Let's just say that you've gotten my resume. I'm all excited and and I respond to this job description the way that you just you know wrote it. Um, and now we're having our our meetings, right? What is your you know, when you're going in, you know, what are the questions that you would ask to see if somebody really is that person that you want to bring into your team? Well, first of all, I never hire after just, you know, one, two, or even three interviews um, because I don't truly, if I'm going to add you to the team and you potentially could be here from one to the next 10 years, I'm going to need to sit with you more than 30 minutes or an hour to determine if, if it's a good fit. Amen. Um, and so in the first interview, I really never, ever ask you about your, your work. Um, you know, I've seen your resume, so obviously you've made it in the door. I've gotten a bunch of applications, and I picked you um, uh, out of all of those and maybe just a few others. So I, I kind of trust that your experience is there. But before I even dive in too deep, I want to know if I like you. you know, what's your favorite show on Netflix? You know, who's your favorite golden girl? <laughs> um, so, you know, things like that. What do you do for hobbies? What are the kind of books you read? Uh, where was the last trip you took? How do you um, grow yourself personally or professionally? I want to know if you're going to line up with me and the culture and the people I've got here because the team is, is weighing heavily on me that I'm not going to bring someone in that's going to jack up their lives. That's going to be better and going to drive them to be better. And so if I let somebody creep in like that, that's my fault. And the team is not going to respect me for it at all. And so I want to know in the first interview, let's just talk. Tell me about who you are as a person. Um, and then in the second interview, I kind of want to talk to you about your experience. And I want to know things, you know, that, tell me about a time that you really screwed up at work. Tell me about the biggest mess up you've ever made. I love that question because it's, it's not telling me about your greatest achievement. I want to hear about a time you screwed up. One, because it shows me that if you're teachable or not. Um, two, it tells me if you're humble, like if you can't come up with something, we've all messed up big, but if you can't share something with me that, you know, that you messed up, but here are the lessons I learned from it. Um, you know, chances are you're probably a know-it-all and I don't want you on the team either. Um, and so experiences like that have shown that if I kind of think outside of the box on the questions, not yes or no's, or even the strengths questions, I say, Hey, tell me what your coworkers would tell me your strengths are. And why would they say that? Give me an example of when your coworkers saw this in action. You know, very complex type things. Um, on my website, um, you can download the, the 20 most important questions I think you should ask in any interview if you want. Um, but I love questions like that. I love to ask the question, you know, do you consider yourself lucky? Um, and a lot of people will say, I don't consider myself lucky, maybe blessed. But I find lucky people or blessed people tend to be better prepared for life. And occasionally I've had some people say no. Um, and then I, I probe in that a little bit deeper. You know, why is that no? I love the question. Um, it comes out of left field. You know, tell me what the biggest issue facing our country today is and why. And it's such a complex question. You have to kind of walk a sort of a political line. You don't know whether I lean this way or that way. It's not simply just a, you can't just give me a simple answer because I added in that why. Um, but I like that because it it's very complex. It shows me how quickly you can think on your feet and how deep you go when it comes to complex issues that you may face day to day um, in a situation. Another tactic I love, I haven't used it that often, but I have used it um, when I'm hiring for some place that's going to create, like someone's going to jump into a position that's very stressful. I'll try and create a very stressful environment in the interview. It's already stressful in an interview. You're meeting me for the first time. I'll interrupt you. I'll ask you a new question. I'll probe in. I'll tell you I don't believe what you're saying. Just to kind of get a sense of, 
can you handle this level of stress? Like this is going to be the most stressful situation because you're going to get more comfortable with me as we interview. Um, so this first one, I want to see how you handle it. You know, I've had people leave and say and email some of their friends that were all on my team and say, that was the craziest interview I've ever been in. Um, and I wasn't doing it to sort of be mean. I knew the position they were, they were interviewing for and I wanted to protect them from entering into that position and, and becoming very stressed and finding like very difficult. And so if they can handle that kind of stressful situation, you know, in that first time, then they could probably continue pursuing on the interview. I like to interview in my office. I like to do it in a big empty boardroom. I like to do it with people around a board table. I like to maybe grab a coffee. Maybe we'll take a walk. You know, I want to see you in different environments. I want to see how you react. That's sort of, you know, just a little basic stuff. You know, it's not just a list of questions. You're, you're trying to find out how they react in different situations, what makes them tick, their decision-making process. All of those things are things that you need to try and discover. And I find it very difficult to do all of that simply in one interview. Absolutely. And you know what happens is that most companies wait to hire until they're desperate for help. And so then taking the time that what you just described takes, that's not something you can do in two days, right? right. And so companies wait until they're desperate. And then, you know, the, the hiring manager's like, oh, come on, let's move this along. Let's move this along. You know, the, the whole job description thing, you are preaching to the choir on that one. I'm super passionate about job descriptions, especially if you're going to post them publicly. It, it better be, you know, an actual an accurate depiction of what the job is. But you just, you know, I tell people you can't wait to the last minute. You have to have a hiring schedule for the year that matches your potential volume. Um, and and you, people don't do that. They, they, they have their sales forecast and they have their marketing budget. You know, they have their P&L. They have everything set for how they're going to grow their business. But typically you don't see companies then have the hiring plan that's necessary to get there. Right. You know, I mean, we used to have to include that in ours. Hey, how many people are you going to add this year? When are they going to come on board? Do you have the budget? You know, obviously, you're not going to bring them on in January. You're going to bring them on in July. So in July, you're going to start to add that to your bottom line. Have you budgeted for that? What's the role going to be? I mean, it, yeah, if you plan for it, you know, the, the Bible teaches us where there's no plan that people perish. Um, and that's the same for organizations and nonprofits and churches or, you know, Fortune 500 companies. Yeah, and you brought up um, another topic that we speak a, a lot about here. And just that, you know, John and I have both worked in nonprofits. We both consulted with churches and just about how different those environments are. And, you know, please forgive me, but sometimes how dysfunctional they are because everybody is a lovely, kind Christian person and they don't want to hold their neighbor accountable. Right. So if someone's not performing, typically what happens in a nonprofit or a church, they're just moved around. So they're moved around to some other place where they can't get it done. Um, so when you're out working with churches, I mean, are, do you have to be pretty, pretty blunt with them? How do you get that point across that, hey, this is an accountability problem? Yeah, you know, I even uh, that that's a very good point. You know, I, I've hired a bunch of people when I was in another organization um, that people worked for churches and they hated it. Um, and then, you know, there are great organizations, but ultimately I think you're right. They, they do move around and, um, you know, I kind of love this. I heard this statement once, whether you're a church or a nonprofit, if you run the business poorly, it won't take long before you actually are a nonprofit. Um, <laughs> and, um, 
And it, it comes down to that. And I think holding people accountable are, are definitely some of the best ways to do that. And people, you know, they, they struggle, I think, with conflict or this desire. And so you kind of have to say, here, if those are our goals and this is what we're trying to achieve and we're trying to get here, you're kind of holding us back from that. And this was a lesson I had to learn early on. Um, and I wish I would have learned it earlier, to be honest. But I had to get to the point where I w- was less concerned about what you thought of me than I was about the success we were trying to achieve or the goals we were trying to achieve. And that doesn't mean I wanted to be mean to you. That doesn't mean I wanted to be rude to you. That just meant I wanted to win more than I wanted you to like me. And this came about because I had a really good friend um, who kept letting me down. He kept letting me down. And my boss and those I was accountable to kept saying, hey, you didn't do it again. You didn't do it again. And finally, I was just like, I had to write him up. And he was a good friend. And I'm like, I can't continue down this path. I want to win. My metrics for success are a demand that you raise your game or you've got to move on. And I'm sorry, but that's just the way it's got to be. And uh, ultimately, you know, we sat down. It was very difficult. But that, that first time I did it was hard. After that, it was really easy because then I just got focused. You know, here's the goal and here's where I'm at. And I don't want you to get in the way. And that's kind of what the, the when you hear leadership is lonely, that's what they're talking about. Yeah. Leadership is you're the guy that has to hold the, the team and the organization accountable for achieving the goals, pushing people to be great, pushing people to put in effort beyond what they even thought was possible um, so that they can achieve greatness themselves. Uh, otherwise, they won't. They won't do it. And so they need you there doing that. But ultimately, also, as a result, it can sometimes be lonely because you can feel like you're the only one out there pushing and prodding. Yeah. No, absolutely. You said it. If you're more worried about what people think of you, and that's an insecurity fear, right? And oh, by the way, we all have that because we're all broken humans. And so if we walk around living in, in our securities and our fears and walk in the office going, oh, gosh, do, do they know that, you know, I made a C in economics? <laughs> you know, yeah, right. the finance guy know that, yeah. you know, if we're, if we're walking around listening to our self-talk and all those doubts in our head then, you know, we don't have that confidence to to approach problems right away. And so the, I call it the festering, right? Right. That festering, I think, is the biggest, I mean, it sounds dramatic, but I think it's the biggest enemy, uh, especially the smaller the company, the more disastrous the festering. Because in a, in a large group of people, you know, you can go out and you can have lunch with somebody else and whatever, and it kind of gets diluted a little bit but in smaller organizations if uh, something's not being handled right away it just sits there and festers and then your good people will leave because they can get other jobs and then it just goes downhill from there right when you allow poor behaviors the other people in the team see it you can't keep champions on your team if you keep setting that up to work with people who are not champions um it's funny because you know john earlier you said Part of the problem is people hire too fast and fire too slow. And then we talk about, you know, earlier then we talked about communication. Now we're here talking about performance and accountability. And a lot of people want to operate everything in a vacuum. So, you know, as we go back and I say hire people that you like and you get along with and they're also talented, like all of this, it goes together. You can't separate it. They're not mutually exclusive. And so um, when you over communicate, sometimes, you know, when it comes to accountability or holding people to a standard that you need. We have all these metrics. HR has this, you know, we're going to do an evaluation and 360 evaluations and all this stuff. And I think sometimes as the leaders, we, we just try and overcomplicate that. Like as, as the guy at the top, you should know, you should know, you should be out of your office knowing what's going on. And I like to have four metrics. That's it. You know, are you po- doing a poor job? 
Are you simply performing your job? Are you progressing in your job? And are you prospering in your job, right? I want everybody to be progressing and prospering. It's that simple. If you're doing a poor job, I need to start to say to you, hey, here are the steps that you need to take to move forward into the uh, performing aspect, because right now you're not even there. And we're going to get together in two weeks and we're going to go over these and see how much progress you've made. Um, and then if you're you're progressing, I really want to see you start to prosper. So how do you prosper? These are your, your rock stars, the guys that are really kind of making everything hum. And so you need to set them up as sort of the example for others to follow. Uh, but when we overcomplicate these metrics with numbers and data, guys, you just, you know, Make it simple. And so when I say, or John, or Jim Collins says, good to, and good to great, over-communicate, here's what he's talking about. Communicate with your guys. Let them know where they're at on that process. Hey, you're doing a good job. Hey, you're not doing a, bad, you're not doing a good job. They'll respect you for it. Because if you only tell your team the good stuff, or you're one of these guys that only is negative all the time, um, that's not healthy. You need to be equally as good and equally with bad. They, so they can respect you and trust you. Hey, he's going to tell us when things are good. He's going to tell us when things are bad. Well, let me share something to, you know, just listening to, you know, uh, Chris, you and Sandra talk, right? There's a subtext going on here. And if you think about it, right, uh, what I'm pulling out of what I'm hearing is a lot of the values that you would share personally and that the organization has. And I think really having some, you know, this is part of a discussion with the existing team and the culture and connecting to that, you know, whether it's, you know, accountability, belonging, being grateful, you know, you know, thoughtful, good communications, being collaborative, taking feedback, holding each other accountable, you know, these kind of things. And what I always have done with my team and I, and I coach my clients is the, you know, these, you know, these first interviews you have with somebody and you're sharing the feedback and your thoughts and your impressions, you know, when, when you meet with somebody and talk, how, you know, do they share the values that are important to that culture? Is this somebody you think can, you know, can give and take constructive feedback? Is this somebody that's willing to be held accountable? Is this somebody that, you know, can, you know, uh, you know, perform under stressful situations, whatever it happens to be. And I think that when you're really focusing in these, these first, uh, couple meetings and you're getting to know somebody that's what i'm always listening to what's you know what's that you know kind of the reason behind the reason they said that what are those places where their energy maybe really peaks that they answer a question did i did we just tap into something that's really core to who this person is and what is that something we really want to have more of here in this culture or is that something that might be uh you know create some challenges down the road so that's kind of you know as i'm first meeting people that I want to bring into an organization, uh, you know, that is kind of how my, my, uh, my, my, my head is wired as I'm, as I'm listening. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you, you have to be intentional about this entire process. You have to understand how it all works together um, and why bringing people in that you want to hang out with, bringing in people who are talented, bringing in people. I always look when I hire if someone leaves, I'm not looking to replace that person. I'm looking to replace the best person on the team. So that's the quality of candidate I want. And I don't mean I'm going to try and I'm going to get rid of that guy. I mean, I want to get better, not just from the guy who left, but now I'm looking for the best person on the team and I want a candidate that's as good or better than him. Because every time someone leaves, I look at that as a chance to get even better. Um, and, you know, I think when we hire sometimes as leaders, we can be insecure and we'll either hire um, people that we can somewhat control 
or some people who are even less talented than us because, it, you know, we'll we always look greater than our team. But the reality is you'll never achieve like super great things with a, a team that's mediocre. Um, and so I always want to be reaching past um, where the very best person is on my team. I love that. And and so let me throw this out uh, also is we want to hire and then develop and then retain our best people. And, and Jason Dorsey's organization just came out with some great research. And here's what he found. Uh, this was kind of a shocking number. Um, he surveyed mil- millennials and 90% of millennials on their first day on the job decide whether they want to stay at that organization long term or not. So at the end of day one, they're they're deciding, man, I'm I'm uh, I'm all in here, or I'm gonna, you know what, I'm gonna bide my time here until I find something better. So you know, once we you know we've decided to bring this person into the team, we think they're going to be a great fit. They got the the right cultural fit. They got the technical skills. What are some things that we can do to kind of really succeed in bringing them into the team and integrating them and making this a place where, man, they want to stay, um, call their mom and say, man, this is the best place ever. And then on social media, tell their friends, guys, you need to come and apply. This place rocks. <laughs> well, first on their first day, have their first day planned for them. Um, make sure you got a crew that's taking them to lunch. You know, my first day on a job one at one position um, I was excited. I'd moved my family. Um, I showed up, <laughs> I didn't have a chair or a computer. <laughs> I was like, wait, what, what have I done? This is crazy. Um, and so you can, you know, take care of some stuff before they arrive is, is, you know, I have found that even the most simplest and basic things, you probably just need to state out loud. Um, so yeah, do that. The second thing is during the interview process, I always say to every single person I'm interviewing or I'm talking to, hey, if you're looking for an organization that has it all figured out, that's not us. But if you want to join a company that kind of needs your help to help us figure it out, that's who we are. 80% of your job, we've got kind of organized and ready for you to go. 20%, we need you to come in and help us figure out and get on top of. And so here's what happens. People say, oh, yeah, that's great. That's the organization I want. I want someone who wants my input, blah, blah, blah inevitably after a few months they'll walk in and say hey this is kind of frustrating i'm not sure what's going on this person doesn't have that and they don't have that i'm not exactly sure where we should head and i'll remind them of the conversation hey your first few months here whatever it was 80 percent of it was figured out this is the 20 percent i was talking about i need you to go back and get with these guys and help us figure this out i know you're frustrated but that's why i was clear on the front end and so when you state that out on the front end, it alleviates a lot of the pressure and frustrations that whether they're millennial or not will feel. And then I want to make sure that uh, once they're in, that they're, they feel like they've joined a team. And so um, everyone kind of wants to hang out. If you're the leader, you know, everyone kind of wants a bit of your time and, um, and they kind of want to sit with you or talk with you or whatever it might be and get, get information. Hopefully that's what they want. I like to wear them on my hip. So I'll tell my assistant, hey, for the first two or three days, I want this new hire, depending on who they are and what they do, but for the most part, if it's, if it's me, even at a junior level, I want him in every meeting I'm in. I'm in. Again, we're not, we're not sharing state secrets here, you know, which is funny because I feel like some people are like, you even bring him to that meeting? And it's like, look, I'm not trying to fight the Russians or the Chinese. Like, I'm simply just trying to bring this person in. And the more they can see what I'm doing and what the mission is and they can see how we're doing it, the quicker they're going to get up to speed and start to be really, really useful. 
to me and this team. And so I wear them on my hip. I bring them, I won't say I bring them to every meeting, but I'll say I bring them to 90% of all the meetings I'm involved with for the first two or three days. Um, and they really appreciate it. I get to know them. They know that I'm approachable. They see how I operate. And then I start to slowly do that with the team. Hey, make sure they're involved in all your meetings now. Make sure you're talking to them. At the end of the day, we'll recap. What did you learn? What did you see? What, did, what interested you? Um, what do you see that we might have done better? Et cetera. And so we have this, you know, intentional time at the end of the day where we actually sort of decompress and deconstruct everything they just saw. Um, and so that's a, just another way from intentionally setting up their first day to making sure their first week even they have someone to go to lunch with every day um, that they you know get to know and see. And then the fact that you take the time and effort to sort of drag them along with you and just sort of sit in the corner and watch um, makes them feel very, very valued from the start. Yeah, because you, you know that feeling when you're walking into a new job, a new office, all your new coworkers, kind of that 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 kind of feeling in your gut, you know, driving in that first time. I've always felt that every time, and you know that, that there's there's two competing forces that are happening here. This this concept, uh, this dynamic called social anxiety, and there's two pieces of this. The first one is. Um, the motivation to succeed. I want to do well. I want to be thought of, you know, by my new coworkers, this new team. And I also, the fear of failure. So I don't want to look bad. I don't want to say the wrong thing. And so a lot of the things that you're talking about, you know, they hit both of those. You know, one of the things we do that's pretty simple, we onboard folks on Tuesdays, not on Mondays when things are kind of crazy and busy. We have them actually show up around 10 in the morning after kind of our morning meetings are done and people have, but you know, art can be present, and we actually wear name tags because one of the uh, a stress-inducing thing for a lot of people is just trying to remember everybody's name in an organization. So the new person doesn't get a name tag. So on on Tuesday, when we have a new employee and everybody sees the one person without a name tag, and everybody's wearing theirs, they know that that's a person that they're in. It's part of the culture. Let's go up and introduce myself and say hi and ask them if they have any questions and let them know what I do and. So there's so many actually little things that we can do, like you're talking about, Chris, that can just make that first day just an experience where they're driving home that night going, man, did I make the right choice? Right, exactly. Um, because, you know, the first week they're just trying to figure out where the restrooms are and how to make coffee or even get coffee. Yeah. Um, so our expectations shouldn't be like over the top for the first, you know, two weeks or so because they are trying to learn everybody's name. They're trying to remember where they're supposed to be and where the offices are and just exactly, you know, where where to go at lunch when they should eat or whatever and is it is it really there is it really no gossip policy and do you really can you really just take lunch when you need it you know they're just trying to figure out how the culture works yeah and you know that on the flip side if you don't have a culture where everyone feels valued and knows their place and is confident in their current situation and then you bring a new person in and oh look freddie's getting to go you know hang out with Chris all day and have lunch with him. And oh, he's getting to go to that meeting and I didn't get to go. If you don't have a really strong, confident culture and you bring someone in and you are, you know, so you bring in a superstar, right? That's credentialed and experienced. Um, if you're not having, um, you know, real conversations with people so that they feel valued when you bring someone in like that, that's when the power plays start. It's like, well, I don't want Freddie to be more successful than me. So you know what? I'm not going to tell him about this, that, and the other. And I'm not going to invite him to this, that, and the other. I mean, I've seen that my entire career. Right. Yeah. No, that's silly. And that, you know, it's 
I've seen it as well. And for the life of me, again, I can't figure out why it is. Those people usually, people know who those people are and they're not as, um, you know, as politically as savvy as they believe they are, I guess. It's probably the best way to say it, but it happens. And so, but you need to create that culture. You need to be intentional. You know, we had these uh, core values that the company I worked at and there were 10 or so core values and you know, they were, everybody knew them. We talked about one every, every meeting. And they were basically the, the, the non-negotiables that your company does. Like, hey, we've been successful because these are the things we've done and they're non-negotiable. You know, and yeah, who is it? Uh, I don't know if it's Maxwell or Collins talks about um, killing your sacred cow, which is essentially, hey, if you've done something the same way for a long, long time, you shouldn't just do it because you've always done it. Like, and so one of our core values is, we, hey, we kill our sacred cows. We're always looking for better ways to do something. We don't, we're not going to do something just because um, we always have, uh, in essence, meaning that if there's a be- new and better way that's going to be better for our customers and better for us, we're going we're gonna to explore it. So don't be afraid to speak up was kind of the issue. So in my department, I said, you know what? Our department's unique internally. We need to come up with our own core values. And one of the core values I had had when I took over was we have fun. And that seems silly to say, hey, we have fun. Of course, everybody wants to have fun. But the reality was when I took over this department, it wasn't a fun place. Other departments in the company were actually hiring people internally for their own uses to do what my department was supposed to do because we were so miserable and difficult to work with. And um, so I put that on there and said, we have fun. And so there was a night where we were working late and one of the guys that needed to do something was really struggling. And so I said to him, hey, let's have a little competition. We had some Nerf footballs up the stage. You had 10 or 20 of them. And I said, let's, I'll give you $20 for if we can, every time we hit that exit sign at the back of the room. And we was about 30 feet away. So it wasn't like super easy. It was a bit of a challenge. And, and one of the guys said, hey, can we just quit screwing around and get going? Because, you know, he was hungry, he was tired, he wanted to go home. So I said, okay, well, we'll just let us do this for a minute. And, and we did that. And the guy that needed to get what we were doing in de-stress, it really calmed him down. And we were able to kind of knock things out quickly. And we really needed him to get it because it was a presentation that he was giving. And, and we were put, putting a lot of information on him. And, um, you know, he just needed to take a minute. And so I went back to the guy who sort of complained. He was helping us run for this presentation. And I said, hey, what's one of our core values? It's that we have fun. And did you see um, Jack up there? He was struggling. He wasn't having fun. And so we needed to take five minutes just to have a little bit of fun because what we're doing here, we're working too hard and in too stressful environment right now not to have fun. Like, I don't want to take that element out of it. So if we can't have fun in this entire process, then I don't want to work here. And he was like, you know what? You're right. I'm sorry. But reminding your team of these values and things are, can be really constructive because when you put them out there, there's no denying sort of your expectations for their behavior. And, you know, that seems like a, maybe a ridiculous story. But the reality was it was really important for a team who had really struggled through this and been miserable to work alongside to say, hey, we're not going to do this if we're not going to have fun in this entire process. And if we're not having fun in this process, how do we fix it so that it isn't so stressful and crazy and chaotic? Uh, Chris, that was great leadership. And I hope people kind of tapped into what you were saying there, man. That's a huge value bomb. Um, you know, when you're working with a team and just, you know, over communicating and reconnecting them to your values and why they're there and making them feel important and, and included in the conversation, but also pulling them into you know, how this uh, relates to the whole team, man, that, that was well done. And so, um, you know, you, you're 
the books that you've written, written Hiring and Firing and Creating an Amazing Team Culture for Leaders in a Hurry. You also have another version, which is about uh, Amazing Team Culture for Pastors um, specifically. So how do people find out more about you, connect with you, kind of find out you know, where you live online and so forth? Well, you can go to my website, chrismefford.com. And uh, because it's a podcast, and that's M-E-F-F-O-R-D. I love that's right. Um, and you can download the ebook for your Kindle or the audiobook. I know it's a podcast. We like to listen to things. So I put it there. If you'd like, you can go to Amazon and pay for it or Audible and pay for it. Um, <laughs> or you can just go register at the site and get it for free. I'm just here right now to help people. It's not, it's not a little ebook, it's, you know, it's like 200 pages. You can actually get one printed at Amazon if you want. Um, if you want to own it and put it on a bookshelf, but, uh, you know, I'm just, I'm here passionately to help people. You know, I do a lot of coaching, a lot of guiding and even a little bit of consulting, um, on how to fix and, and turn around your team culture. And so it's what I'm passionate about. I somehow I've been blessed with the skills to kind of pull that off and help people, um, and, and show people, you know, just exactly how to get promoted and get ahead and, um, to make their lives a little less stressful and a little bit more successful. Awesome. So, you know, as we wrap up, Chris, what are just a you know, a couple of final thoughts you'd like to leave with everybody if they've if they've been listening in this uh this last hour? You know, um if I had to sort of hit my highlights, it would be my lessons where I wanted to win more than I wanted you to I like me. Um I want you to like me, but I also want to win and if you're if you're constantly creating a situation where I can't have both, then I want you to know I want to win <laughs> um, when it, as it relates, it relates to our professional relationship. Um, you know, as a leader, you're the problem, but you're also the solution. So a lot of leadership, they just get frustrated. You know, I, I got saddled with this team. I don't know what to do with it. HR sends me bad candidates. I don't know how to make my team do what I want. That, those are all the problems. But the fortunate thing is, as a leader, the sooner you realize you're the solution and that people will get out of your way if you're trying to achieve things and achieve goals, that you actually have more power than you possibly think you do, um, you'll start to see things turn around. And then finally, probably, we're not rewarded when we do the right thing at the wrong time. So if, if you have, if you start, if you're a farmer and you plant your field in the winter, nothing's going to grow. And so you need to start putting these processes in place. The sooner, the better, um, so that you can start to be rewarded for a lot of these energy and effort that you're putting forth right now. That's awesome. Love it. And I and I love your stuff. I've, I've I was. Um looking through a lot of as we prepared for this interview and I think we're kindred spirits for sure just great tips Chris and and it's real world that's what I love the most is that it's real applicable stuff that someone can look at today or listen today and implement it like you know after lunch this isn't something I have to go take a six-week course on I mean these are common sense natural skills that we all have that we use in our families and with our friends and, and sometimes even, you know, in, in, in church or a club, but we don't use them at work for some reason. And so that's what I love about this is that it's real stuff. You know, I'm, I'm just excited that everyone's had the opportunity to hear you today because they can they can go do it like right now in five minutes. Yeah, thank you very much. I love, you know, that sometimes they're referred to as soft skills. Um, you know, they're not, you know, running a spreadsheet or do it, run, crunching numbers or creating a message or writing a blog kind of thing or whatever. The, these are soft skills, but they're the, almost the most important skills that you can develop in leadership. And, and they're simply just not taught anywhere. Yeah. And I've made a career off of soft skills because if you can lead people to do things that no one else thinks they can and they don't even think they can, that's where great things happen. 
um, you know, the, the the spreadsheets get done and, you know, the numbers get hit, but people have to feel part of something and they have to feel valued or nothing else is going to happen. That's right. Thanks for listening to Eternal Leadership. Be sure to check the summary of this MP3 for any important links and a link to the show notes for this episode. As I said at the top, this edition of Eternal Leadership has been brought to you by Marketplace Rock. Is there something that feels like it's blocking your business? The team at Marketplace Rock partners with you in unearthing those things that could be holding you back through intercessory prayer. Just earlier this year, Vicki told me while she was praying, she heard from me to water the seeds. I knew exactly what it meant and got some business out of it. Another time she was praying and accurately described one of our dogs who turned out needed medical attention. John and I can't recommend the team at Marketplace Rock highly enough. In fact, our phone calls with them are the highlight of our week. Visit them online, marketplacerock.com, or listen to either of Amy Everett's past interviews with us, episodes 4 and 66, marketplacerock.com. For John Ramstead, I'm Steve Ryder, and thank you for listening to Eternal Leadership. <laughs>